This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Palgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Playing Intrigue. Tundra Holes. Cthulhu's WPA. And the Tartarian Empire. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm, uh, so say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon. A quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. As talked about previously on Ken and or Robin Talk to Someone Else, Jeff Titball has dropped Band or Album Remix in the Kickstarter area. So go to your favorite Kickstarter area, look up Band or Album Remix, and back the heck out of it so that Jeff admits that I get to still keep some of the Kickstarter money. Thanks, everybody. Kickstarter area is album. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut where, oh, that's odd, someone uh, knocked over one of those miniatures and Peter Frampton's holding not his beloved guitar, but a dagger? What's going on? I think it, I think its account has also been drained. Yeah, this is not, well, that was, that was just um, uh, the music industry. That's not anything to do with us. But we are in an intrigue-ridden episode of The Gaming Hut because we're talking political intrigue. I think it's a genre that a lot of people say they want to play, and then they think about <laughs> how hard that is to run and play, mm -hmm. and they say, what if we just have a villain who's like a count or something? And everyone nods and says, that's pretty intriguing. And then they go back to doing whatever it was they wanted to do. But how how can you thrive, Robin, as a player yes. in a political intrigue-heavy game? Let, are we just assuming for the sake of the argument that the GM is is capable of wending and wiling their ways through the, the political intrigue storyline and putting all those balls in the air? Well, let's assume that because the, the, the advice, if he's not, is don't play the don't game. Don't play the game. Yes. Once again, yes. premature segment ending. Da, 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 da. Good night, everybody. Right. And we've already done the part of almost every Gaming Hut segment where we go, assuming you really want to do that. Yeah. And <laughs> as uh, listeners may have noticed, I am trying to work in more player-focused advice when we do these advice-oriented segments. And so, so let's assume, as we always have to do, <laughs> uh, that your other players are also good, although, of course, you're the best player. You're the favorite. And... Uh, the GM yeah. uh, also uh, knows what she's doing and go from there. Uh, and 
So we're assuming sort of a, a sandbox style game, but instead of, of your sandbox being a, a vast ruin that you are excavating or a city that you're bopping around in, although you may well be bopping around in a city in a political intrigue game, especially if this is political intrigue with people who have fangs, which is the most widely noted and popular of the political intrigue games. So the, the question is how to do this well, how to achieve the stated objectives of the core activity, which are to uh, rise in political power in this uh, cool, uh, no doubt, nerd-troped, imaginary, uh, possibly fanged, leather jacket-wearing world. So let's get to the obvious uh, points of advice to begin with. And the most obvious one is think ahead a little. Uh, before you show up at game, ask yourself what it is that your character wants. One of the big difficulties in all sandbox games is the moment where the GM leans back and she says, so here's what we did last week. Now, what do you want to do? And everybody looks around blankly to each other. And here is your opportunity. Uh, because as I said before, you're, you're the favorite, you're the best player. So you've thought ahead a little bit about what it is that you would uh, like to do and then can pitch that as an idea uh, to the other players, assuming of course, that you're even acting in concert at all, because it may be uh, a setup as in drama system or as in just other trad in trad games where the GM may well pop from player to player for little uh, scenes. You're not necessarily all in a, a, a band. But if you're using the cutaway style, of course, that's all the more reason to show up knowing what to do, because then you can say, well, I know what I want to do. And then you can get the first scene and you can uh, set things off and get things going in the direction that you want to, by the mere dint of putting a minimal amount of thought into it uh, before you arrive uh, at the game. Ken, what's your next tip? I would say that uh, the other thing to do, and this I think is true whether you are a band of uh, tightly allied, uh, a faction, if you will, or if you are playing um, more PvP political intrigue. And believe me, if you are playing PvP political intrigue, get used to accomplishing a big fat lot of nothing because the other players will have the same sort of advantages that you do. And while you may be cleverer than them, there there are more of you. And elementary bandwagoning is a thing. That said, let's uh, presume that either you're so much smarter than everybody else or that you're a faction that this works. The thing to do is to begin to leverage your power to get more power. A lot of people believe that in a political entry game, it's the same as a dungeon. You walk into the tapestried chamber, you say a few pithy words, you accomplish some stuff, you get the rights to sell nutmeg in the kingdom, there you go, problem solved, move on to the next thing. Political intrigue, much like uh, capitalism, involves putting your work to work for you. So you suborn a guy who has the nutmeg franchise, you offer him something that he desperately wants, maybe vampiric power, maybe something else, whatever it is, and then Lord Nutmeg is out there working for you. And your job is to sort of smooth his path a little bit and maybe put up another Lord, um, uh, Lord Indigo as, uh, Oh, Lord Nutmeg, you'd better not get too fat and happy and complacent because Lord Indigo is on the upswing. Oh no, he's so terrifying. And so you've got Lord Indigo and Lord Nutmeg. Both of them are feeding you whichever advantages are the sort that your game is about. And in this case, it might just be solid gold ducats, but it's also probably positioned to do other things that you or your faction of fellow players uh, want to accomplish in a larger way, whether that's, you know, convert the kingdom to the worship of the good sun god instead of the evil necromancer god, whether that's some other long-range goal, which is, I guess, 
I've jumped ahead to the meta version of your advice, Robin, which is don't just have a short range goal, have a long range goal. And whether that long range goal is just, I want to be the vampire prince of uh, Hartford, Connecticut, or whether that goal is, I want to have lots and lots of solid gold ducats, or whether the goal is in fact, you know, something actually political, like converting the kingdom's uh, churches over to a new worship or making your daughter the queen or something like that. That might be uh, the long-term goal that everyone is understood to be working toward and accumulating power, although obviously they're also accumulating power for the sheer fun and, and villainy of it, right? Right. First, I'm going to say the phrase, suborn the nutmeg, uh, just in case I want to put that on a shirt. Right. <laughs> and uh, that brings me to the next point, which is learn to love trade-offs. Uh, we have already alluded to the fact that some people think they want to play political intrigue, but don't. And the main reason that they often don't is that they hate compromise. This is also why many political activists hate real politics. <laughs> uh, so in your fictional guise, in order to get things, you will have to give things that uh, there is no political negotiation where you walk in and give a pitch and the other person says, great, we'll do that. That's not politics. That's something else. I don't know what that is. And it's not office politics. It's not any kind of uh, bargaining for power. So the trick, I think, in learning to uh, love to compromise, to give as well as get, is to start off by thinking, what do I have that I'm willing to give? And so uh, that way, when you're going and approaching uh, the Dwarf King uh, for uh, assistance, uh, finding the, the secrets of your uh, old fortress, but he... Uh, his price of that is he wants you to go to the prince and reinstitute responsible government. First of all, find a, find a non-Canadian dwarf. That's my <laughs> advice. Well, the dwarf built the city originally 500 years ago and again, a hundred years ago. So he's, he's got good reasons. But anyway, you know, when, when you do that, well, okay, what have I got that I want to, uh, I don't really want to institute responsible government. That seems, <laughs> I don't know, responsible. Right. Seems like sort of counter our objectives. Also, also, I love the Canadian notion that the construction magnate is in favor of responsible government. This is this is fascinating to me on many levels. Dwarves are imaginary beings, Ken. That's, <laughs> right. that's Dwarf 101. <laughs> but at any rate, so you think, well, what am I willing to give? What, what step in uh, this non-player character's agenda am I willing to facilitate? Well, I don't want to sit around and uh, go to planning commission sessions, but I am willing to introduce him to the prince. I'm willing to arrange that. And that could even be a fun, cool scene. So the trick then is, is to think, what do I have to offer? What am I willing to offer? And then uh, go in. Because if you leave it to the GM to just uh, show up and go, I would like uh, the maps to the uh, third level of the tomb, and you leave it to the GM, the GM is going to come up with a counteroffer that is going to make it tough for you, that is going to put the squeeze on you a bit. And the way to you know, counteract that is to help do the GM's job for her by coming up with a cool, credible thing that moves the story along. And I guess this is bringing me to uh, another tip, which I'll briefly make and then turn it back over to you, Ken, which is look for ways to move the story ahead. That will make you the GM's friend. That will make you uh, indeed her favorite, as we've previously established. So look at goals and agendas that push the story ahead rather than being a blocker, than being an obstructionist, trying to stop things from happening. Because then you're not the GM's friend. You're the opposite of the GM's friend. You're the, the balker downer. You're the, you're the block in the way. And so uh, think what would be fun and interesting for us to do that the GM might like. 
How does that fit my agenda? Let's do that. Yeah. If you have two options, one the turtle option and one the literally intriguing option, go with the intriguing option. A, it's what the game's about. It's the core activity. And B, turtling is literally never fun for the GM uh, because then the GM has to think, well, how do we uh, get a turtle out of their shell? And if the GM has been around the block, they know hammer is the answer. And you don't want that. <laughs> That's not that's not what you're doing. You're you're, no. you're here for more of a stiletto type game. Uh, optionally a drill, but still the, the principle is the same. Optionally a drill. Still no fun. So the goal is to be thinking, as I think we said at the beginning of this, thinking not just the one move ahead that is the, what do I want to do today in this session, but two or three moves ahead, which is... Where can I move things so that the GM will be so tempted to find out what happens if that the GM will go along with it? And so in a way, in addition to snowing the dwarves about your uh, commitment to uh, good government or snowing uh, the local anarchs about your hatred of the current harpy or snowing the um, uh, uh, Lord Indigo about the threat posed by Lord Nutmeg. You're also snowing the GM by saying, if you just let me have this little thing, this little advance, let my daughter come out at this ball and snub the archbishop in the way that I want to have happen, it'll set up this great, religious crusade and we promise we're going to go into the basements of the cathedral and see that thing you've been teasing the whole time um and so the the gm will think oh yeah it will be pretty great if the archbishop is suddenly you know cardinal richelieu style has to reveal himself as the, as the machinator and now yeah that is more fun that is more interesting i get it and you talk the gm into their own game's coolness and if you can do that uh, first of all, that is a skill that you can transfer to literally any other game, as my players have demonstrated to my chagrin time and time again. And also, in specifically in the intriguing game, it lets you legitimately have seen ahead. You can be that far-seeing, oh, if we if we move this chess piece, he'll move his chess piece, and then, then the Archbishop will come into the open. If you've lured the GM by saying, this is going to be some really rock-solid gaming, they will move the, the chess piece because they're playing the archbishop not necessarily as a uh, as a turtle themselves. They want to get those uh, red cloaked swordsmen out into the field as well, so they're so they're ready to go, right? Right. And I guess this brings us to loop back to a previous player oriented advice segment we did on getting the other players to go along with your plan. So if you uh, recall that. The idea is to find out what your fellow players will find attractive and come up with a credible sounding uh, plan to effectuate that. So while you're looking at your uh, long-term goal and backwards from there to your short-term goal, think of, well, how can I loop one or more of the others into this and get them on board as well? What is it that I can uh, hold forward to them? So that means in this case, being aware of their long-term goals and thinking of how could I, you know, get Janie closer to her uh, goal of uh, being able to marry two princes at the same time, despite the uh, customs of this kingdom? Well, I got to talk to the archbishop. Janie and I, both of us, we need something from the archbishop. Let's go dig up some dirt on the archbishop. And, uh, and that sounds fun. It's a thing to do. You know, there's going to be some. He's an archbishop. And uh, you can then uh, go from there. And that gets Janie thinking of the cool scene where you put the squeeze on uh, on the archbishop. And it also implies cool activity that even the other characters can get in on as you go around uh, doing a background check on a, a good old golden meter. 
And uh, on that note, uh, when we're uh, threatening to uh, dig into the uh, personal lives of archbishops, as among other rules for getting out of segments, that's one one too. So let's uh, get out of this segment and see what waits on the other side. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21. That's CROWN21 to save... 15%. At pelgrainpress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. The hiss of the Bunsen burner, the gurgling of the pipette, and the hum of the computer making its complicated computational analysis tell us that we've once more joined the segment we call Fun with Science. And Ken, beloved Patreon backer Josh King, says, Massive symmetrical holes have been appearing in Siberian tundra during the past decade. Geoscientists have attributed these to methane buildup, clearly a cover-up. What is the true, meaning elliptonic, as if you had to say that, explanation of what is going on? Ken? Well, I mean, to start with, we should say that uh, Josh King is not hallucinating. There are massive symmetrical holes that have been appearing in the Siberian tundra, specifically in the Amal and Gita peninsulas of Siberia, which is the those northern peninsulas that sort of stick up over the Ob and uh, Yenisei estuary. Those peninsulas happen to be just chock-a-block with methane, natural gas as well, that uh, bubbles up either from the deep, deep earth or has bubbled up during previous warm periods and frozen briefly into the permafrost. The first one they spotted was in 2013, 2013. Uh, there have been a number of craters, at least 17 since then. As you may suspect, the Yamal and Gita peninsulas are not well-traveled. And so what happens is someone's got their helicopter out looking for reindeer. Or they're doing something else and they say, that hole didn't used to be there. And then they call. <laughs> it's full of reindeer. What happened? Right. They call the Russian Science Foundation or whoever. And the, the Russian science guys come out and say, yep, that's a hole. The theory is that they begin as the methane below a layer of ice begins to heat and expand, forcing the ice up into a mound or a bulge. A bulgy ice mound is called a pinko, by the way, if you're wondering. Um, uh, so the pingos build up, and then in this case, they explode into a giant hole, which looks basically like a funnel. So the top of the funnel is 25 meters or larger wide. Then it slides down to a, a cylindrical hole 
that descends usually at least 30 meters deep, the largest known of these big holes in Siberia. So far, we do not have a cool scientific name for Big Siberian Hole, which is, I think, a, a tip-off that it's not a sciencey thing, um, is 50 meters deep. And if you look at the pictures, all the little Russian scientists look very, very, uh, very appropriately teeny walking next to it. The Russians, of course, thought it might have been UFOs. Other Russians thought it might have been the Russian government having stored explosives up there that went off because the Russian government was sloppy and lazy. And then uh, other people have suggested that perhaps it is uh, global warming and that that's what's going on. So really take your pick from all those theories, Robin. I mean, who can say, right? Right. Yeah. It's very bad news if it is global warming because it is a symptom of global warming that accelerates global warming. Yeah, by by blowing a bunch of methane up into the atmosphere. Yes, exactly. So that's uh, a nightmare scenario that has uh, been been brooded and uh, uh, looks like it might be happening. So speaking of uh, catastrophic and apocalyptic, I see a couple of possible explanations uh, for this on, on the elliptony front. And I think it all basically boils down to which cosmology you want to select. So as we all know, Siberia was originally formed uh, when the gods Shagan Chikuti and Otshirvani uh, came down from heaven. And when they originally came down from heaven, they looked at the world and saw that it was oceanic, that it was covered in water. And uh, their question themselves is, water is nice, it's beautiful, it's pretty, but where are we going to put the people? I don't think people survive in water. And rather than make people aquatic, they decided to uh, to do something about this. So Achirvani sat on a frog or turtle, obviously the easy part of this particular divine task, and supervised Shigan Shikuti as uh, this deity dove down to the seafloor to drag up pieces of mud. And uh, this process presumably went on for quite a while because not only did they create Siberia, but presumably also the uninteresting parts of the world that were not Siberia. And there uh, was the formation, uh, not of the planet, I guess, but of Earth's surface on the planet. So what this suggests is that something or someone, whether it is uh, these uh, ancient deities or some force working against them, is now beginning to reverse that process. Because uh, what is a big explosive methane hole in the Earth that opens up leaving a hole, but the absence of of Earth, but returning uh, because apparently there's a layer of uh, uh, water that, because it's extremely salty, it remains liquid at uh, 14 degrees Fahrenheit underneath all of this. So uh, I think probably, and in the divine timescale, this may just have been a couple days, is that uh, some unknown water deity is reclaiming the world. And so this is why we are having a climate change, because uh, of course the ocean levels are, are going to, to rise. And, and I'm sure that deity is also responsible for us deciding to fill the air with uh, methane and other greenhouse gases in order to uh, effectuate their plan. So uh, there's the great cosmological uh, reason, Ken. Is, uh, does that ring a bell for you? I mean, we do know that, that Chagan Shakuti is in bird form and that Otshirvani has been known to take the form of a bird uh, as a heaven god. And that the uh, continuous war between birds and snakes, especially in swampy areas like, say, Mexico, is a thing. So, uh, yeah, I think that the possibility that uh, Abzu or Tiamat or some other primal dragon is at work here messing with uh, our buddies, uh, Otshirvani and Shagan Shakuti, you can't rule that out. And while we're on the topic of dragons 
of chaos coiled under the earth. I guess we should mention the theory that those, uh, what's causing all that deep subterranean uh, natural gas to heat up is not mankind, but the devil. And that the devil is down there in hell and he's just stoking the fires a little hotter. We should note that as uh, Robin uncovered and as devotees of the uh, newsstand conspiracy journals of yore, remember, there was a well to hell that was drilled in Siberia, according to Robin's research by a Mr. Azakov, which sounds suspicious on at least two levels. <laughs> Mr. Made up Russian name. Mr. Made up Mr. Rosarvo. Um, but significantly like another couple of names, he drills a, a hole in this case, uh, nearly 15 kilometers deep, lowers a microphone. And that must have been a challenge, finding 15 kilometers of heat-resistant wire in Siberia. And he it heard that the heat-resistant microphone is even more uh, difficult to find than the 15 uh, kilometers of wire. But I, I think that they're probably both not easily sourced. And, and he heard the screams of hell over the microphone and the, the well to hell. Apparently, it surfaces, uh, according to Robin's research in 1989, in a Pentecostal Finnish journal, which are not words that you see put together an awful lot. Um, and this, of course, is a version of the cola borehole that was an attempt to drill down into the Earth's uh, crust to get to the magma, the sweet, delicious magma. Um, cola Peninsula is much closer to Finland than it is to the Yamal and Gita Peninsulas. It's still a big, frozy, coldy peninsula in Siberia, so it basically must be the same thing. And uh, the cola borehole was attempted a couple of different times by uh, the Soviets and then given up on because it turned out it was expensive and there was no point to it and the soviets and they didn't have a heat resistant microphone they did not and also if they'd heard hell they would have had to report themselves for uh re-education because there's no hell in in soviet union hell is just you know over there in the gulag so the hole to hell which was drilled by the hated atheist soviets in 1989 uh, or rather before 1960s has sparked the devil to send some holes back up to Siberia. I guess we should mention that uh, the devil uh, of uh, Siberia, the Lord of the Underworld, is named Zanji. So perhaps Zanji is sick of letting Chagan Shakuti and uh, Otshirvani have their own way, and he's fighting back. He says, you want to drag up pieces of mud? Here you go. Here's some ice for you. Try that. Try try sucking on that, Chagan Shakuti. So there could be a uh, an ongoing war between these two cosmic principles, uh, or Siberian principles at least, that has um, been exacerbated by the attempt to drill a, a hole to hell by the Soviets. Uh, and apparently, the Nazis also tried to drill a hole to hell in Hungary. So if you're if you're looking for holes to hell, it seems to have been a thing that people wanted to do for no reason. Well, I think the Nazis wanted to recruit. Yeah, I mean, it may have just been a you know, oh, I heard that the devil said Himmler's not all that big. Well, we'll show him. <laughs> Why not have a war on three fronts, including yeah, against you hell? Guys. Yeah. We're willing to prove it. Yeah. Yes. And apparently the hole to hell, uh, like I said, was in Hungary. So I, I guess keep your eyes on the on the Hungarian pompas. Uh, and if they start blowing up, we'll know that the hole to hell theory was correct. So I guess the question is, what uh, what game do we play this in? So uh, if it's the esoterrorist, you can show up and these can be the the rumors behind the story but the real thing of course is that it's uh, yet another one of those gateways to the outer dark that the uh, esoterics are always trying to cook up in this case using the uh, background radiation of the uh, ancient myths and or finnish pentecostal urban legends what other games come to mind as uh, somewhere to 
bring the players into conflict with this uh, great uh, cosmic upheaval. And before we get to the cosmic upheaval, we should mention that the the principle of of this uh, molten salt rising up and blowing a hole in something is seen all over like the moons of Jupiter, uh, Enceladus, uh, and I think Io uh, have this happen. Io on a much larger scale, uh, sort of super volcanic as opposed to just these little piddling um, uh football field size ones. Ken, you're bringing science into our fun with science segment. Well, what I'm saying is that Ashen Stars guys can be coming to a planet that is being terraformed by uh, the good guys, and it turns out the terraforming process is awakening this uh, geophysical cycle, and there's big old uh, explosions happening and holes opening up, and they have to deal with it, and that would be a, a thing that you could do uh, in a game with the actual science. You don't get uh, terraforming without terror. Exactly. Uh, in terms of other, obviously, mysterious holes opening up in uh, the permafrost lead you in a Cthulhoid direction that perhaps there is either something putting its little invisible tentacles down in the ice that the Mr. Azakov, or is that Azathoth, thank you very much, is up to something and that there is possibly a cult that is attempting to summon Azathoth to Earth and that what we are seeing are the beginnings of his little tentacles touching down and that as they expand, you'll start to see more and more of Azathoth emerge out of the uh, the the potential existence around Siberia that uh, since Siberia is as, as we as we say a primordial that uh, some mysterious frog or other sea life was there before uh, Siberia was that that is, is in fact where uh, some other great uh, entity let's say Cthulhu is is buried and instead of being uh, sealed up in those sunny South Pacific, he's frozen underneath the Siberian permafrost. Or, or, because uh, or the frog that Ochervani was sitting on might have been Zasagua, and he might be exactly. bearing a, a grudge. And as we know, he's a bit of a procrastinator, so he's taken a while to get to it. And he has an Arctic uh, vibe anyway with Hyperborea. So perhaps there are Hyperborean ruins that are being exposed by the by the melt off in, in Siberia. And that has led the cult, led by Mr. Azikov, to summon his, his uh, saint, his named deity, uh, to wake up Sathagwa so that Sathagwa will give him uh, super magical powers and make him the the Ibon of the New Age. And uh, for those of you uh, wondering uh, why we haven't mentioned this as a gateway to the Hollow Earth, we just did. Yeah. And now it's time for another segment. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush 
Rush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Protect this podcast from sinister intrigue by joining beloved Patreon backers Robert Wolf, Jane McDowell, Andrea Coletta, Derek McMullen, and Jacob Borsma. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer William Brafford asks, How would you build a Trail of Cthulhu campaign frame around a Works Progress Administration project for down-on-their-luck occultists? When they're not hunting down Tennessee Valley freshwater deep ones, what other New Deal construction, folklore, or theater projects could they investigate? Hat tip offered uh, generously in our space by William Bradford to fellow Patreon backer Gabriel Rossman for the idea of freshwater deep ones. Well, while I, in my Puritan Lovecraftian uh, way, go freshwater deep ones, why don't you? Anything to the mythos, but not that. Why don't you, Robin, uh, give us the the skinny on the good old Works Progress Administration, which, right. of course, is when the government said, "How do we get writers?" To like us, I know. Let's pay writers, right? Well, and not just writers. So yeah. the thing is that it turns out this question turns out to be a, a bit of an easy throw because the answer is basically look up on Wikipedia all the things that WPA was doing, and then that's twelve to fifteen story seeds right there. Yeah, <laughs> this turns out to be a surprisingly easy task. So for background, the WPA uh, was active from. Uh, 1935 to 1943. It was part of FDR's second New Deal. And basically the idea was everybody was out of work. Let's have the government hire people to basically do their regular jobs and stimulate the economy and make a whole bunch of cool new things happen from theater projects to oral histories to uh, Griffith Observatory or uh, Chicago's own Midway Airport. So it's a not just a massive infrastructure plan, but it's a massive intellectual uh, infrastructure plan and, and activity, and it has all sorts of uh, salutary uh, aspects. It was a major provider of support to uh, black communities back when uh, that wasn't even remotely a thing. But if you look at all the different departments of the WPA, you see all sorts of things uh, that they could uh, easily be uh, up to. So uh, I think the key here is that among their many divisions, they had a division of investigation. And uh, the uh, job of this group on paper was to uh, look out for disloyalty, because, of course, uh, this was uh, during uh, initially during the Red Scare and then or one of the Red Scares and then into uh, World War Two. So you're looking for uh, potential fifth columnists on either side of the aisle who've wormed their way into the WPA. And you're so it's basically the internal affairs department of the WPA, which gives you the premise that allows the investigators to jump from project to project uh, and investigate the weird thing that's arisen from one of the many different uh, arms, or shall we say tentacles, of the WPA uh, throughout. And uh, after that, it's all, once you got that premise, it's all it's all easy pickings, Ken. Where do you start? I mean, me being me, obviously, you start with a folklore project, which is a bunch of uh, people fanning out all over America, not just the South, but certainly among them the South, to gather folklore. And this had been a project that had done sort of one-off by individual folklorists, but now the gummit 
is paying for it. So a lot more of it is getting done. And if you're gathering folklore and you presume a, a subunit of Project Covenant, our Trail of Cthulhu government investigators of, of the occult and unknown, or a precursor to Delta Green, the P Division in the Navy, that they've got a guy in, as you suggest, the Department of Investigation in the uh, WPA, and they start seeing, you know, all the folklore come across. It's the it's the work of an instant to to sift it and find some of this folklore is describing black winged killers that come around a white polypus lake. Ooh, that sounds symbolic and interesting. Let's send someone to look into this old story that oh, it barely ever happens down down in the the cricks and hollers of Western North Carolina or wherever. And sure enough, you're on a monster hunt, and it's the easiest, best thing in the world you can do. Meanwhile, you have a couple of questions for one of these folklorists from Miskatonic University who seems to be really enthusiastically going out and taking notes and never turning anything in to the WPA. So what's going on with him? Is he just padding his expense accounts or is he building up a down-home grimoire in some way and for what purpose? Lots of possibilities in the folklore division alone, frankly. I, I, I love mining that for ideas and this would be the best excuse in the world. Uh, so the best known uh, division of the WPA today was the federal project number one. This is the arts division. Uh, so for example, their uh, theater wing included such figures as Orson Welles and the rest of his Mercury Theater crowd, including John Hasman and Joseph Cotton. Burt Lancaster got his start there and the film directors Nicholas Ray and Sidney Lumet. Uh, so you could uh, work in some uh, working class activist New York theater that uh, then uh, goes awry and say, I don't know, Red Hook. But even more obviously, this uh, division was basically a formative influence in archaeology in America. And so they set up the way that archaeology would run. And of course, their focus would be on pre-Columbian artifacts. And so this gives you your uh, mound excavation that gets you uh, dealing with, uh, I don't know if we want to pick the obvious choice, Yig and the Serpent Folk, or any other inobvious choice of ancient ruin uh, that goes much back further into prehistory than any sort of civilization uh, ought to. So again, archaeologists in America in the 30s, that's that could be a whole campaign right there, not just one episode in one. Yeah, it's as, it's as though it were a, a, an ideal time to set a Cthulhu game. Who would have thought to do that, Robin? Yeah, you can also have one of these WPA buildings. You mentioned Griffith Observatory. There's lots of other buildings being laid out and built, and maybe there's some sort of sacred architecture being used in a couple of these designs, and you have to go down and, and poke your nose in there. And uh, they've got improper 30s uh, uh, Beaux-Arts style. They've got the uh, bas-reliefs and the friezes. So you've got your great figures along the side of the wall. And, oh, look, that, that's an, that's an uh, awfully strange-looking Egyptian. Who's that supposed to be? Oh, that's Imhotep, the first architect. Really? Why Why is he holding an upside-down onk? Um, that's a surveying piece of equipment. And, <laughs> and what are those leopards licking his hands? Oh, don't look at the leopards. Don't look at the leopards, please. And so there's a cult of uh, Nearlathotep worshipping architects or any number of, of possible things that are happening. Or maybe the guy who's approving the plans in the WPA, in addition to being a Democrat ward healer, is also... Um, a cultist and is trying to seed bits of uh, this sacred architecture into all over the country to create a super temple uh, to Nerothotep. So it's not any of these individual contractors. They're just uh, reading off the blueprint. It's uh, someone back in Washington or New York that's uh, setting it up. Uh, you mentioned that the WPA also hired writers. One of the main things that it 
had them doing was writing the American Guide series, which is basically a series of uh, travel books covering every place in America. So if you've got a location where you want to send the investigators, they are sent to find out why the team of writers who are supposed to write the guidebook on that particular place have mysteriously disappeared. And so, again, that's an omni-hook that works with uh, just about anything in the continental uh, U.S. Yes, is he writing the guidebook to uh, Arkham, Massachusetts, and he vanishes? That seems a little obvious, but he could be vanishing, you know, near a strange mound in Oklahoma's western uh, counties, and you have to figure out which mound he was looking at, because there's a lot of them, and uh, set you up with a, a, a game of cat and also cat against the folks from Kenyan who can materialize and whatnot and are interested that hmm, uh, American civilization seems to be moving in the direction of uh, art uh, centricity that uh, their civilization has uh, ha- has uh, exalted. And maybe we can come up and help them with some of the arts they're not quite as good at, like uh, uh, recreational ceremonial torture. That's a good one. And you have any number of, of possible sorts of art upwellings from beneath the earth. The WPA also had a historical record survey. They were tasked with gathering the uh, documents of American history. Well, all sorts of documents could be on the agenda there, To uh, whether it be the secret Cthulhu fighting diaries of uh, good old George Washington, or, of course, uh, whatever uh, occult tome you want the cultists to be uh, pursuing and trying to kill your uh, player characters over. Uh, so, again, that's, that's already just straight out of the the Trail of Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu playbook that doesn't require a, a lot of elaboration. Now, we've mentioned Griffith Observatory twice already, right. so we should mention it a third time in order to say that's where you see the weird anomaly up in this. Why are they building this in order to perceive the danger from outer space, whether it's the meteor that bears the color from outer space, whether it's star vampires, whether it's Mego, of course there's going to be an adventure at Griffith Observatory. And uh, in addition to the uh, uh, the, the other on-the-nose uh, projects, the federal uh, project number one included the library services program in which the government provided a bunch of libraries uh, to swing states and other deserving places. And these libraries have to have librarians and the librarians have to have books. And so suddenly you're pulling in a bunch of books from all of these old farmhouses, maybe that haven't been uh, looked at or cataloged. And, oh, look at that. The books were all innocent when they were scattered over a nine county radius. But now that they've been pulled together in this brand new WPA library. Oh, look at that. It's a one stop shop for uh, the cult of Shubnagurath or Yigalanak that have just been waiting for the copy that they couldn't get. And so you've uh, by building a library, you've sort of seed crystalled a bunch of cults starting up in this in this area. And so you have to go dig through not just the the books and take them off, but you have to go through the provenance and say, where did you get these books and what's going on in that farmhouse? So just that one uh, scenario seed can start you off on a whole campaign where you're hunting down where all of these lost grimoires and and uh, weird tomes had been and what vileness they'd left burbling a- around in their rural wake in um uh, you know Nebraska or wherever. Well, when the vileness starts to burble, it's our time to uh, to exit this area, watch it be consumed uh, from the safety of uh, this next commercial and then commence not just one other segment but a combo, an exciting crossover event.
fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing it's time once more to enter the mysterious and uh, somewhat less than salutary area of the conspiracy corner. But this time, the conspiracy corner is bounded because it is inside the architecture hut. Because, Ken, we're going to look at a relatively new, authentically, uh, truly nut bar conspiracy theory slash alternate history. And several people uh, sent this to us. The Tartarian Empire. You already mentioned the uh, the Bozar architectural style. And this is... Uh, central to this uh, conspiracy theory, and uh, we'll reveal in a, in a little while why that is particularly of interest to uh, to you and me and the uh, listeners of this podcast. Uh, but Ken, uh, as the expert on c- conspiratology, do you want to lay out this vast expanse of wackiness? Yeah, this is, I, I think you could call it the first truly post-literate conspiracy theory. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I kind of mean that in a mean way, but I mostly mean it just descriptive because most conspiracy theories are created by assembling various tomes often written by other crazy or demented or um, uh, evil people in the past and sifting through them for some nugget of fact that will explain why your life is terrible today. We are now in a position where no one reads and conspiracies are spread via YouTube videos, which this conspiracy primarily is. There is a book available that's sort of the core book of this theory, but it is basically a book that is assembled a bunch of YouTube videos and and the pictures in them. So, first of all, let me just say that like all conspiracy theories, especially all conspiracy theories in the modern age, it has attracted a bad element. This is not necessarily the fault of this conspiracy theory, but just be warned. Yes, the, the, the anti-Semitic Recruitment League is always alert to any yes. new conspiracy theory and jumps onto their rent. And And YouTube loves it if you're a, a Nazi because then you watch more videos. So YouTube is trying to make you a Nazi all day, every day. So just, you know, with those with those little warning signs on the side, let me say this is my new favorite conspiracy theory of all time. It is the ancient astronauts theory 
And if you remember the good old ancient astronauts, it is that, oh, uh, primitive people who are not Europeans couldn't have built the pyramids and um, uh, Easter Island and, and things like that. Those must have been built by aliens who are also white and European. And they came down and they built them. And so that explains what these seemingly magnificent things that have no bearing seemingly on the on the area surrounding them, where they all came from. And that theory was wrong and bad and racist and ludicrous. This is the better version of the ancient astronaut theory in which you say, everything I look around at is terrible and ugly because I live in the era of modern architecture, which is awful by and large, and certainly is cheap. And when it is cheap, it is super awful. But somewhere in my life, there are things like, oh, I don't know, the U.S. Capitol building or the Chicago Cultural Center, which was formerly the Grand Army of the Republic Armory, or other buildings that were built and obviously are not awful. They're amazing looking. And I see on on the internet that there are pictures of other buildings like this, and and they've all vanished. This amazing white city that, that was in the south side of Chicago, that went away? What's going on? Who could have left these beautiful buildings? So you are taking the racist assumptions of the ancient astronaut theory, and you're internalizing them to say, I live in a debased, savage, barbaric civilization. How did these great buildings show up? And the answer that they've come up with is again by looking at things on Wikipedia and paying no attention to them. <laughs> yes, if you want to avoid doing pesky research or knowing history or knowing anything about construction or the economics of buildings, just go straight to the pictures and create a narrative based on that. Exactly. And so someone on Wikipedia noticed that there used to be a land on old maps called Tartaria and that that land was very, very large and important. And it seems to have run most of Asia at one point, according to these maps from the 17th century. And even if you look, Asia's yellow on that map and North America's yellow on the same map. So Tartaria must have also run North America. This is fascinating. What happened to Tartaria? And you look in and someone discovered a CIA record, which referred to the Tatar Republic of the Soviet Union, saying that the Soviets have been destroying the history of Tartaria. And they said, whoa, Tartaria was a place and then the Soviets destroyed it. Fascinating. The CIA is onto something. And then they uh, look around and they're like, all these buildings, maybe the Soviets are, are one of the bad guys. But if you look Back in the, in the, in the timeline, you see that the Tsar Alexander and Napoleon are all buddies. They're kissing in all these pictures. And, and look, that's right about the time that Tartaria goes away is that the French and the Russians have teamed up to stop Tartaria. Oh my goodness. The Tartaria has been basically killed in the mishmash, the ahistoric mishmash that happens if you are in a post-literate society of things that are basically modern European culture, that modern Europeans teamed up with often emotion parasite monsters or something else to destroy Tartaria. And because Tartaria is this ancient land, all the other bits of um, the sort of conspiracy theory, uh, the loose filings begin to be magnetized toward it. So someone says, well, the Tartarians must have had energy weapons because Atlantis had energy weapons. And that's the same thing. Oh, the Tartarians might have been giants. That's why the buildings are all so big and the doorways are all so high, as opposed to the fact that they were built before air conditioning. And so you had to have high ceilings so that the rooms weren't horrible and stuffy. Because again, modern architecture has made it possible for us to have low, terrible ceilings that uh, that, that oppress us. So the 
whole notion that there is this lost civilization that explains the existence of good architecture, both in your life and on the internet. And, and so the question is, what happened? Well, there was some sort of giant eruption. Again, you can sort of make up the date, but some people think it was uh, the War of 1812. The, the There was the pushback. Some people say it was more recent, even that it was in the 1920s that uh, uh, happened. But the bad guys, whoever they are, set up a mud flood that buried the examples of Tartaria. So Tartaria is a land Atlantis, if you will, that they, they flooded all of Asia out killed all the Tartarians and left only the sort of remnants. And then often in these discussions of Tartaria, they'll say, well, these depictions of the Tartars of the modern Central Asians, they're just racist caricatures. We know the Tartarians were actually tall white guys because look, when they drew Genghis Khan in the 15th century, they drew him as a tall white guy. And that was closer to Genghis Khan time than ours. So they must have been right. So there's this insane, not insane, this overly creative mishmash of sort of ways of thinking and narrating the past to yourself that are absorbed from, again, probably from YouTube, mushed up against this sense of architectural frustration as opposed to political frustration, which delights me no end, by the way, that people are as mad at modern <laughs> art as um, architecture as they are at um, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald now. That's great. And that it has created this sort of organic, almost, theory to explain why everything is ugly and terrible by repurposing basically the ancient astronaut theory. And you can go down very, very many, very, very deep rabbit holes on Tartaria. Most of them, again, are YouTubes and, and whatnot. There is a, uh, a couple of what on earth is happening here type articles that are pretty good, but they only begin the flavor to, to, I mean, obviously you should dive deep into the Tartaria Reddit if you're looking for the combination of true belief, desperation, and LARP and irony that is how all conspiracy discourse is carried out now with, of course, as you mentioned, lashings of anti-Semitism, because of once you start saying there was an ancient civilization that brought us good things and now we can't have them, whose fault is that people, you know, go right to, well, I don't know, but I have a guess because I've watched other videos on YouTube. And that's where it comes from. And obviously, any sort of basically reactionary conspiracy theory like this one is will attract basic reactionaries and including some fairly advanced reactionaries in the sense of that they are farther along that particular spiral of the horseshoe than um, uh, good hearted folk like myself who merely despise Le Corbusier and all his works. So uh, one of the, the sort of axis mundi of this myth is the Singer building, which is uh, by architect Robert Flagg put up in New York uh, City and it was a big, long, beautiful, tall tower. It was erected in 1908 and knocked down unceremoniously uh, it was at one point the tallest building in the world, and uh, it only lasted uh, in our our timeline 60 years before being knocked down because it was taking up New York real estate. Yep. And it was uneconomical. Too it expensive. Was big, it was a big, thin tower and didn't have enough office space for the square footage. And that is uh, what sort of, how could they possibly, how could they, people be destroying these beautiful Beaux-Arts buildings? What's going up here then? So that's where that comes from. Now, the, the, they particularly fixate on the Beaux-Arts architecture style, and its name comes from the, the École de Beaux-Arts, which, if you know your uh, Yellow King Paris, that's 
the very same school that the player characters are studying at. And so, as you've suggested, Ken, uh, we're not fastidious about our architectural influences here. So the other styles are also celebrated by the Tartarians. And uh, the Beaux-Arts itself is a mashup, uh, which is useful if you're creating an, an ahistorical timeline. So it has French neoclassical elements in it and Gothic and Renaissance, but it was made with then modern construction materials. And so uh, these we can look at these as basically the, the, the feng shui sites of this theory. And uh, there are some really significant buildings, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank in Shanghai, which you've uh, seen in all sorts of Shanghai set 1930s Hong Kong uh, gangster movies. And Ken, you've already mentioned the, the White uh, City, which was, uh, tell people what the White City was. The White City was the fairgrounds, the exhibition buildings for Chicago's World's Fair in 1893, designed by uh, lit- literal angelic contactee Daniel Burnham, and designed in a an almost uh, ideated Beaux-Arts style that captured the imagination of American architects and led to another generation of public buildings being built basically in that same sort of style, certainly among them the uh, buildings in Chicago, as, as well as lots of other places in America. And the, the White City, because it was a fairground, most of the buildings were built out of lath and plaster and were knocked down after a fire tore through it. The only permanent remnant of the White City is the Museum of Science and Industry. So if you're uh, Googling around, uh, look at a picture of the Museum of Science and Industry, and you say, that's a darned attractive building. The reason is it was built as a fairground building and was basically retro-cladded uh, into being a, a permanent object. But you can, I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of, of very, very mainstream books that talk about the uh, things like the Singer Building that were these great monuments of basically turn-of-the-century architecture that have been knocked down either for reasonable economic reasons or sheer modernist vandalism. And uh, there's a wonderful book called Lost Chicago, which is, you know, frankly, the loss of Louis Sullivan grates on me much more than the loss of John F. Kennedy does. And and so this may be why I have a um, uh, an affinity uh, for the Tartarian uh, boys, uh, as long as they stick to architecture criticism and don't analyze international finance. I feel like that's where they go wrong. And, and as far as 1890s, uh, weird horror goes, we also yeah. have to note that the White City was the stalking ground of H.H. Holmes. Right. And, and we can also note, of course, that Tartaria sounds an awful lot like Carcosa. Indeed, uh, given yes. That in Repair of Reputations, Chambers talks about the knocking down of all the ugly modern buildings and their replacement, although he thought of Beaux-Arts as modern, their replacement with Basically, Beaux-Arts construction, that all the old was being uh, put into this new architectural form and that uh, one of the spoor of the paradise he ascribed to Castaigne was the replacement of everything with uh, American Beaux-Arts and that that is a, a piece of evidence to go along with the fact that Carcosa sounds an awful lot like Caracota, which was the capital of Robin, wait for it, Tartary. Thank you very much. I'm here all day. Right. Uh, so, clearly, the idea that history is being rewritten out from under people and these perfectly explicable buildings that we have full records for and uh, uh, had economic reason for existing in this post office is here. Now people are looking at this, post. how could they possibly have afforded to build a post office that beautiful and amazing? It must have been. So, clearly, the influence of Carcosa is emanating from the Belle Epoque to uh, perhaps the present day, uh, not just necessarily convincing people 
that these buildings were constructed by an entirely different civilization uh, millennia ago, but maybe it's starting to rewrite things so that that's actually uh, happening. And one possible sort of counter element to this is perhaps, you know, once you get to the this is normal now part of the story, you realize that there is one Beaux-Arts building that has a significant positive mystical resonance that as long as it remains in its current role, that reality will still be anchored because another Beaux-Arts building is the Hockey Hall of Fame here in Toronto. So as long as the uh, the sacred artifacts of Gordie Howe and Wayne Gretzky remain ensconced within a Beaux-Arts building, we... The, the tribute to the greatest team sport in the world. Exactly. Now, uh, one of the promulgators of this, who's a 26-year-old Norwegian plumber, uh, suggests that uh, the fall of Tartaria came about due to mystical uh, parasites who feed on human emotions. Well, those sound like outer dark entities. So if you don't want to do this uh, in the Yellow King, you can, of course, uh, do it in the Esoterrorists. I, I just love the, I mean, I, first of all, as I've said a million times, I'm a thousand percent on board with the aesthetics of this nonsense. But also, I love a conspiracy that is almost explicitly about timelines replacing each other. I think that I've, I've loved hidden history ever since we, we talked about it way back in the day. Well, many years before we talked about it. And I like the sort of reality horror quality of something as firm and solid and wonderful as the museum of science and industry, having a possible secret past where it was built by uh Tartarian giants a thousand years ago, as well as also in 1893 by Daniel Burnham. And the notion that these two realities intermingle and interlock on the place of these gorgeous buildings is, I mean, it, it's a prettier conspiracy. It's a prettier metaphysic than a lot of the other ones, which are just, Oh no, aliens, fine, whatever planets. We also love bastion star forts. We'd be remiss. We didn't mention that. So mm -hmm. you can get your Renaissance fort building. I suppose when you're rewriting the historical timeline, you can throw in star forts with your Beaux-Arts architecture. That's, that's all well and good. Early modern, not Renaissance, but yes, whatever. Yeah, I mean, the, the, any of the sort of uh, first wave of uh, of European imperialism, there's buildings in, you know, not just Shanghai, but in uh, Jakarta and other places like that, that are uh, left over from, again, the era before air conditioning, so they had to be tall. And in the era of desperately cheap, and in many cases, <clears throat> enslaved labor, and so... Therefore, they could be ornate because you didn't have to pay for all that stuff. Or even if you did, the pound sterling went farther in terms of buying a uh, little uh, uh, cool riffs on the side of your building than it does now. So the, the, anywhere you are in the world, you can find a Tartarian outpost pretty much and uh, join in with the conspiracy or, or bring it uh, around there. It, it's very much like your your global feng shui spot uh, notion where that there is an attempt to overwrite uh, one reality with another. Uh, one of the tip-offs, if you're looking, if you're wandering around a city looking for remnants of Tartaria, is a below-grade basement window is apparently a sign that it was uh, that they mud flooded it. That whoever the, the the enemies of the Tartarians, who also have to be pretty badass if they overcame energy weapons to create a giant worldwide flood, whoever mm -hmm. they were, they also had to have something going for them in addition to mystical emotion feeding. Yeah, there, there's there's an awful lot. I mean. Let's just say that don't go into investigating what people think the mud flood was on an empty stomach. There's a lot of very disgusting theories as to what that was. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the mud flood is, is sort of a, uh, a common element 
of of all of this. It's it's a it's a story element that sort of wound up in it. Uh, there's pictures of the U.S. Capitol being dug out, probably from an actual flood that people have said, "Aha! Look at that! Even the U.S. Capitol was once half up to its uh, hinders in in mud. Uh, that's proof." And I think the, the paradolic ability to find things you were already looking for has turned up lots of pictures of buildings being dug out of floods. And sure enough, from a lot of floods to one flood is a jump that has been made. Uh, let's just say this is not the first time in human mythopoesy and will not be the last. Well, before this podcast is knocked down to put up a brutalist podcast, it's time for us to uh, exit. But we'll be back a mere week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Don't let this podcast fall into a hole in the tundra. Join such intrepid Patreon backers as... Mike Merles. Rich Ranallo. Ryan Mannix. Scott Jones. And Trung Boy. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Combine your love of cats and your love of tentacles with our latest design, Tentacle Cat. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time. And once again, we will talk about stuff. 